Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartim, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. Okay, well, welcome in, everyone. Uh, It's Thursday. It's the Apex Hour. And welcome back to our listeners. I'm so happy to be here. This week, we have been having such a great time with our guests. And just to tell you a little bit about how he came to be on campus, this is the first of a annual collaboration that we've started. You know, we have this incredible Southern Utah Museum of Art here in Cedar City. And and we have a great um, uh, organization or or it's called the Tanner Center and it's an an institute that can also collaborate to host guests and has a series um, that has a theme each year and each um, semester that they feature. And so we all kind of put our heads together and dreamed up this idea of an annual artist in residence program. So um, our guest today is our first inaugural, hopefully annual guest. And I know it's not going to be your last visit to Cedar City. So I'd like to welcome Chris Jordan. Welcome. Hello. Thank you, Lynn, for having me on. What a pleasure it's been to explore your work. And um, I just should say right off the bat for people interested, um, you can definitely find find him online um, and and really dig into some of the things that we're going to talk about. So to get going, I'd love for you to just tell us a little bit about yourself as an artist. I mean, we've been learning a lot, but for our listeners or for people who may not be familiar with you or your work, how did you come to be? And tell us a little about you. Ah, uh, well, I'm a photographer, mm-hmm. and uh, for maybe 20, going on 20 years now, uh-huh. I've been looking into the issue of mass consumption. Right. So I'm the guy who takes photographs of giant piles of garbage. Yeah, so where did that start? I mean, I know we've talked a little bit about how Albatross, which I'm excited to talk about, came to be, but... I mean, was were you the little kid that was looking into this kind of thing? I mean, were you always, uh, did you have any idea that this would become your focus? Is there any inkling in the childhood years? If you had shown me a crystal ball when I was young and said, you're going to be a guy who takes pictures of dead birds on a remote island in the Pacific whose bodies are filled with plastic, yeah. I would have been aghast. Right. And I would have said, no, you, your crystal ball is broken. <laughs> but it's it's actually been a really amazing journey. Um, I've been interested in photography for a very long time, right. ever since I was a kid. And so I've been photographing, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of photographs I took before I found my way to doing something that was relevant, that was connected with the world. And when I first started taking pictures of giant piles of garbage, it wasn't because I was interested in mass consumption or making like a social 
commentary. It was just because I thought they looked cool. Oh, okay. Now, how did the camera first find its way into your hands? I, I know sometimes photographers have a, a certain story of a moment or a camera that was a gift, or what's your beginnings with the camera? Well, my dad was a photographer. Oh. And he was also a photographic collector. Oh. So he, he had a pretty sophisticated eye for photographic art. Mm. And my mom was a watercolor painter. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. And so my dad's whole interest in photography was all black and white. So he studied all the great masters and he had all their books and, and, and kind of taught me all about color and texture and form and the beauty of black and white photography. And my mom, her work is all about color. color. Yeah. And so she would draw her paintings with a really faint pencil, just draw the outlines of things. And then she would take the watercolor paper and soak it in the bathtub and put it on a table. And when you put a drop of paint onto the wet paper, it would sort of spray out in this really magical way. And she would paint like flowers and stuff. And I remember like she would put a drop of blue paint and then a drop of purple paint next to each other. And they would like a nebula in the, in the Hubble Space Telescope, they would just blend in this incredibly gorgeous way. So I fell in love with color. And so as a photographer, I've always been a color photographer, kind of trying to plumb the depths of magic in color. And, and for many years I photographed and I, I was just taking photographs of beautiful things mm. and I couldn't find my relevance. Like mm. I couldn't find a subject that was beautiful because I just love so much the, the beauty of the photographic process um, and that carried some kind of social commentary. And mm -hmm. just by happenstance, I started taking pictures of giant piles of garbage and found my way into this issue that has consumed my imagination for almost a couple decades now. Wow. The, the first moment or the first pile of garbage, where was that? It was uh, in the port of Seattle. Uh -huh. That's where I lived at the time. Uh -huh. And this was back before 9-11. And so the, the, the port was open and all the gates of all the industrial yards are open and you can just walk, walk in there. Yeah. And, uh, and it's this such a bizarre place. I mean, there's massive piles of shipping containers and train cars all lined up by the thousands and p giant piles of broken glass and, and crushed cars and just like this kind of awesome infrastructure of our mass consumption and it's simultaneously visually fascinating mm -hmm. to to behold and it's also sort of like getting to go behind the disneyland ride and see the scary machine that's running it all it's yeah. like the infrastructure of this destructive force in our world pulling back the curtain and seeing something very frightening oh yeah exactly wow and so if 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 somebody wasn't familiar with your work or if you were describing your work and you weren't you, how would you describe your work to somebody else? Well, they are very large scale photographs of huge piles of twisted metal, huge piles of cell phones, huge piles of broken glass and crushed cars. And they're all in color and the color of all those things is actually really fascinating and strangely beautiful. Mm. Like a whole pile of old cell phones, there's a million different colors in there. Mm -hmm. Or a pile of, of trash. It's all of our, all of the, the, 
on the supermarket aisle, all of the bright colored potato chip bags and Minute Maid orange juice, like they're trying to attract your attention yes. in the supermarket. And so when, when you throw all that stuff in the garbage, it's like looking at a Monet painting. Right. There's just this fantastic palette of color. Mm. And and so I really love that that juxtaposition of gorgeous impressionistic painterly color that you it's so beautiful you don't want to look away and then the actual subject that you're looking at is this horrifying kind of monster of our mass consumption that you can't bear to face right and simultaneously we're sort of held in a trance facing this thing and and it it kind of stops us and and maybe in that moment a, a key turns in a lock somewhere mm-hmm. inside us just going back to the history for a moment, do you think that your parents knew you were going to be an artist, a photographer? Was that writing on the wall from the get-go? Well, you know, I went to law school. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. That, that, I, I was afraid to be an artist. Really? I, it's, it's what I wanted to do more than anything in the world is, is go to art school, and I was afraid to take the risk of failing. Oh. And so I went to law school. And while I was in law school... My dad sent me a new camera. Huh. And wise man. <laughs> oh, it makes me feel a lot to remember it. Yeah. It arrived in for my birthday in October of the second year of law school. Uh-huh. And I took a fall break. I took off 10 days from uh-huh. law school. It was the University of Texas at Austin. And I drove into into this part of the world, into southern Utah, uh-huh. um, and, and went to the Escalante. Wow! And spent ten days. Uh, I, was, I explored Canyonlands, yeah, and it was it was the most magical experience. And it, there was a, a kind of awakening for me. Like for then, from then on, I've been a, a passionate photographer. Wow! This is a bit of full circle. Then I had no idea that the that that Utah connection really held that significance. That's beautiful to hear. Thank yeah, you for a, sharing that. A, a deeply transformational thing to to be in the desert Southwest for the first time and alone with a camera in the fall. It, it snowed. There was a oh, dusting yeah. of snow and just the incredible clear air and the that feeling of of, of a billion years. Yes. you know, being there with those. Layers, layers of, and layers, layers of rock yeah. and oh, it was a magical experience. Well, and for the and for somebody so interested in color, I mean, the Utah color landscape is something that you really can't. I mean, nothing compares. I mean, all of the reds, all of the blues, all of the greens, all of the whites, and that contrast is really, um, really striking. So, oh, yeah. And since then, I've I, I've come back almost every fall for I don't oh. know how many years and explored. The state parks and the national parks, and oh, great. some done some cross country hiking in BLM land, mm, and yeah. some rafting, and just really, really love this part of the world. Oh, that's great, and it's a great lesson, uh, you know, about fear that you mentioned. I mean, you know, being a little bit afraid of of, of pursuing your passion or pursuing something that, at some level, on a very deep. Uh, in a, in a very deep level, you knew you wanted, um, and that's a great message to our students. That's a great message, really, to anybody. You know, to embracing that um, that trueness to oneself. So, thank you for that lesson, mm. also. Yeah, you know the the thing the the only regret that I have is 
the the fear that I had about going to art school, I didn't know that I, I had that fear. Mm. I wasn't consciously aware oh, I that see. I was making a decision out of fear. Right. So okay. it was a fear that resided in in my unconscious. It was it was below my awareness. Interesting. And so for young people, I wouldn't necessarily say you have to follow your passion. Uh-huh. It's just to become aware of what you're afraid of and what might be running your life in the background out of fear. I and love you that. still get to go to law school, you still get to go to business school or whatever path you're on, but to just become aware of that fear. Mm-hmm. And when you become aware of the fear, then it's not in control of you anymore. I love that. And then that. you get to choose. You have choices that you didn't even realize you had. Yeah. And if I had become aware of that fear back then, I might have decided you know what? I'm going to just be with that fear. Of course, it's scary living your life as an adventure. Yeah. Of course, it's scary going to art school, but I'm going to take the risk. Right. Or I'm going to be with that fear and just contain that fear. And I'm going to go to law school. And like, but it would have been a choice that I got to make consciously. And I, I wasn't aware of the fear. Mm, that's fascinating. And it goes into a little bit of what I'd love to talk about more when we get into to Albatross and some of your other more recent work, which is being open to feel. And I think that's something that's been really, it sounds like it's been really transformative. That seems that that's something that's come up over and over again during our time together is, is the importance of being open um, to feeling and, and, and to allow, allowing that feeling in ourselves. So I'd love to continue that conversation, but it's already time for a musical break. I can't believe it. Um, and I've been looking for some interesting music. Um, this uh, is a, uh, uh, I know that you're, we'll get into the musical thing later too, because I happen to know now, which was my guess, is that you have a musical background. And one of the things that struck me in in Albatross in the film was was the incredible use of music um, and, and a bit of a fondness for both guitar and piano. Mm. Um, so I have a guitarist for you to listen to. This is um, Fabiana uh, Striffler, and the piece is called Despertando de Otro Sueño, so Waking from a Dream if you will. And uh, we'll get started on that. This is KSUU Thunder 
All right. Well, welcome back, everyone. This is the Apex Hour. Um, I'm Lynn Vartan. I'm joined in the studio with Chris Jordan. Welcome back, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> Chris is our artist and resident, amazing photographer and filmmaker. Um, and we're going to get into starting uh, to talk a little bit about that. But we were just chatting about a topic that both of us hold very near and dear to our hearts. And that is, of course, music. Um, and you were just telling me if I don't know if you mind sharing your, your story. We were, we were sharing a love, uh, a mutual love and adoration for Herbie Hancock and also the, the great album, This is the Drum, which a lot of people don't know about. It's one of his, I mean, at, and based on your meeting with him, it's one of the albums that many people don't know about or haven't heard. But for those who are particularly percussion minded, you might want to check it out. Do you mind recanting the story of, of you meeting Herbie Hancock? Oh, man, I was a, it was one of my shining moments. <laughs> well, I'm a, I've been a jazz pianist since I was a kid. Yeah. And Herbie is, that dude is just from another planet in terms of the, the depth and power and brilliance of his playing. I mean, I think he's one of the great, greatest artists in any medium in the history of humanity. Yeah. That guy is just not even from this planet. And so I was at a conference and he was at the conference. It was at, at the Getty Museum in LA. Mm -hmm. So there was a break and we were all standing outside and I saw there's Herbie standing over there. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm too shy to go say <laughs> a anything. A little fanboy perhaps. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so I just walked over and sort of was standing near him. And he <laughs> was talking vibes. to somebody. Yeah, just standing near Herbie Hancock. <laughs> and he finished his conversation with whoever that was. And he turned to me and he said, what are you doing? <laughs> That's awesome. And I said, I'm standing near Herbie Hancock. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great response. Perfect. I love it. And I told him I've been a fan of his forever and, and, and that my favorite all time album of his is this is the drum, mm -hmm. which is this, it's such an interesting offering by him. It, it, and that's one of the things I love about him so much is how much he evolves. Yes. Like he does a solo piano thing. Then he does a super gnarly electric funk and then works with singers yes. and he's just always trying something new. Yeah. And this is the drum was like, it was like hip hop rap. And just the fattest, unbelievably fattest possible grooves imaginable. Yes. With that Herbie Hancock sophistication of of harmony and um and there's something that he's tapping into in that album that is so primal. Yes. It's like when I listen to those songs, I see African masks going yeah. by and like mm -hmm hieroglyphs yes and he's he's just tapping into some really deep kind of primeval archetype or something that i just cannot get enough of i've had that album it's at the top of my playlist i listened to it for six months on repeat one time no way studio. yeah well it's a very unusual album experimental i think is a good way to describe it i mean in terms of what you especially what you typically think of herbie hancock and i think that it got a little bit of a backlash because people were a little shocked by it but he told you it was one of his favorites i think is yeah that what he said? i told herbie I mean, that's that's my favorite of his and he said, yeah, I think that's my favorite work of mine as well. It's like, oh, wow. I know. It's really great. I mean, um, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it and want to open your ears, you know, and wh while we're in sort of the theme of openness, um, definitely check out Herbie Hancock. This is Dad Drum. It's really very, very cool. 
Well, I'd love to continue the discussion of music and particularly of your use in music in your film Albatross, which I believe is 2017. Is that the correct date for the film? Uh, actually, it was released last year, okay. in 2018. 2018. Yeah. Okay, great. Would you give us first a little bit of an over... I mean, there's there's so much to talk about in it. And we were... Some of us were so fortunate to be able to see it at a screening here on campus. But I also know that it's possible for other people to see it as well. But can before we get into some of the use of music and some of the interesting techniques in, in filming and and the midway and all of these things. Can you tell us, um, for anybody who may not know, just a little bit of an overview about what that what that piece, what that film is about? Um, Albatross is a film about birds on a remote island in the Pacific Ocean whose bodies are filled with plastic. Right. And it started as a kind of horror story, a, a documentary film about a, an environmental tragedy. And when I met the live birds... When I went to the island and, and, and was actually there with these huge, magnificent creatures that mm. are the albatrosses, there are a million albatrosses that live on this island, I fell in love with them. Yeah. And they, they've been on that island for four million years and they've never had a predator. Right. And so they have no fear of humans. And, and they're as big as eagles. Like they're these huge, magnificent, spiritual, sentient beings. Yeah. And imagine being able to walk out into a field of 900,000 eagles. And as you walk among them, they don't run away and fly away. And if you sit on the ground, they actually come toward us until pretty soon you're surrounded by a bunch of them that are just like, they'll come all the way up and, and their face is inches away from yours, just curiously looking like, what are you? Yeah. The most amazing experience. And so my film sort of walks the line between experiencing the horror of the tragedy that they're ingesting plastic and they're dying by the tens of thousands as a kind of reflection on our culture and the beauty and magnificence and grace and elegance of these amazing creatures. And so it kind of turned into a, a sad, beautiful love story. Yeah. And it's available for free. We, I, we put it on our website for free. So anyone who wants to watch it, you can just go to the website, albatrossthefilm.com, and you can download it and own it or stream it uh, for free. So anyone who hasn't seen it or heard of it, um, you're invited to do that, and I hope you love it. Uh, it, it it's a transformative. I mean, to see it is a, is quite transformative. I mean, it 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 had a lot and it has a lasting impression on me and I know on, on everybody who is there. The choice to make it available for free, I mean, can you talk? I mean, that is just so rare. It's not something that you hear. I mean, I know you've you've referred to it as as a gift um in a way uh, and and as the albatross as your teacher in a way also. And can you tell me a little bit about that decision to put it out there uh, so freely? Well, um, there are a few factors. Um, one of them was it, it felt to me like the, uh, well, first of all, I spent eight years wow. going to the island, going back and forth to the island and filming, and then four years making the, the film. Mm -hmm. And that entire process was a life-changing thing for me. It mm -hmm. felt like a gift that came to me from wherever Yeah, that, uh, and I wanted that experience, just the the spiritual experience of being with those creatures to pass through me in the cleanest 
and most transparent way possible. Mm. And to add the commercial element to make people pay just didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And it's also like, it feels to me like this is the time for each one of us to to do something radical. <laughs> and and by radical, I don't mean violence in the streets type of radical. It's just the, the word radical comes from the Greek word for roots, like right. getting back to our roots. Like yeah. what can I do that's more than just bringing canvas bags to the supermarket? I love that. You know, that. like yeah. we, we, we know we have to go further than that. It's, right. it, it's not enough to just say, I, when I go to a bar and order a martini, I'm not using a plastic straw. Right. Like we're, we're all called to something deeper right now. And so one thing that I decided I could do is give away as a gift economy offering, as a gift to the world, as a gesture of trust to the world, um, the, the, the film that I just worked for eight years on and it carries with it a a particular kind of energy that way. Right. That was to me consistent with the experience of being with the birds on the island. Beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing the gift to you as a gift to the world. That's really incredible. Um, Rhythm is something that we just got off of talking about, but I'd like to come back to. And I know that um, in the intro to the film, you talked a lot about how uh, the rhythm of the film itself is quite unusual and that actually you were advised not to take the pacing or the rhythm of the tune, if you will, or the tempo of the tune, if you will, at, at the t- pace that you did. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? And then we'll get into more of the musical choices. Yeah. is Well, I didn't go to film school and I'm, I, I still really don't think of myself as a filmmaker. Um, and so when I started making this film, then all of my friends who are filmmakers all sort of took me under their wing and said, okay, I'm going to give you documentary filmmaking 101. Right. Here it and, is. <laughs> and the very first thing they always say is the rhythm has to be really fast. Yeah. And they would speak about viewers as having a really low attention span. Like everybody has a YouTube attention span or not even YouTube. That was the past. Now it's Instagram. Right. And they would say, your shots should be between two and four seconds. And they said, make your point, ba ba ba, and move on. Yeah. And that just totally went against my instinct of like whenever I see a nature documentary and there's an incredible shot of a whale going by and they cut away from it, I'm like, dude, <laughs> come back. <laughs> slow down. Let me yeah. see that whale again and let's yeah. do it in slow motion. Like, I wish I could just stretch it out. Mm. And like, if we were scuba diving with whales, you wouldn't look for f- two, two to four seconds at the whale and then be like, okay, I'm bored. Now I'm going to go get back on the boat. Right. And it's the same thing. If you could come with me to Midway Island and we could go to where a baby albatross is hatching from its egg and literally put our faces so close to the nest that our nose is touching the edge of the nest and there's a baby bird hatching from its egg you wouldn't want to speed up you you wouldn't be impatient to get somewhere else you would be like oh my god this is the most amazing thing you might just lie there and get comfortable and watch for hours yeah and so that's how i made my film it's it's intentionally really slow Mm -hmm. And there's some long shots where you just see a bird flying for the longest time. But the more you look, then you start to notice the way its feathers are, are 
moving in this really graceful, beautiful way and the, and the way its wings sort of undulate like a wave as it flies. And so the more you look, the more you see. Right. That's exactly the experience. I mean, that's certainly, you You absolutely get that across. I mean, um, you know, watching the baby hatch is, I, I just wanted more. I mean, I wanted to watch every single moment and and not miss a thing, you know, and, and definitely would have sat there for, for time, for hours, you know. So, so that rhythm in and that choice um, then begs the question from me about your musical choices in the in the film, because the music is amazing. Um, and some of it, I think, is performed by you, if I read the credits right. And can you tell us a little bit about that process? Um, because I know that there, uh, w- there were some pre-composed pieces and and then you're playing some things. So what was the process of the sound design in terms of um, the musical choices, the timing? I mean, there's some moments where the timing of the music is just so incredibly in sync with the movements of these birds. So tell us about that. Oh, that was the most joyful part for me about wow. the whole filmmaking process was working with the music and cutting to the music. Yeah. And what filmmakers told me is the standard way to work with music in a film is you cut your scene together without music. Oh, just like on the visual rhythm. Oh, interesting. And then you hire a musician to compose music to your picture. Right. And so you bring your almost completed picture in and the musician looks at it and you're like, okay, we need 17 seconds of, of a building feeling, right? a growing feeling, and then seven seconds of a climactic sound. And then right on that shot, we're going to cut to a sad sound mm-hmm. that's going to fade over 22 seconds. Right. That's typical for film scoring and movie scoring and all that, right? Yeah. And what I learned from talking to some of those musicians is that kind of music intentionally isn't shaped like real music. Absolutely. It isn't. It sounds like music. It's notes played on musical instruments, but it intentionally doesn't go anywhere. Right. And it doesn't have the kind of melodic strength Mm -hmm. and structure and harmonic power Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of music Mm -hmm. because filmmakers don't want to use real music because it will pull focus away from the picture. Mm-hmm. And so what music, the, the, the standard use of music in cinematically is to support the picture. Right. And, and the derogatory term is to underline the picture. Right. Underscore. Underscore yeah. the picture. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And people told me if I use real music, if I use like Pat Metheny uh-huh. or Herbie Hancock uh-huh. or Rachmaninoff or, yeah. or, uh, or, or like real music right that the the footage won't stand up to it and i just thought i think it will yeah i think you're right (laughs) and i just love the depth and the arc like music has an arc yes and cinematic music so often to me just there's a sort of fake feeling to it Mm -hmm. so i decided what i was going to do is use all real music for the entire film and use every piece at its full length. Oh, okay. Because it, like, if you use the first three minutes yeah, of a Pat Metheny piece, you mm-hmm. can't just cut it. No, right. You've got to get to his solo and hear the whole solo, and you, like, you just have to hear the whole thing. Exactly. 
So it was so much fun, but it was also a real challenge to choose a piece like Pat Metheny's Are You Going With Me, uh-huh. which is seven and a half minutes. Yeah. And and cut together this epically exciting scene of, of birds running off the beach and taking yes. off out to sea for the first time. And I had to use the full piece of music. So it, it's like cutting together a music video. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so that's kind of what Albatross is. One way that I think of it, it's like... 22 music videos all strung together into a film. Oh, nice. I love hearing that. That's really cool. Now, did you, are are these songs that you've always wanted to use or uh, how did the choosing of those come to be? I mean, are they favorites that you've had forever that you knew you wanted to use or a combination or you sort of had an idea like, oh, this also sounds like flying or this sounds like water. How did, how did the choosing of the pieces happen? Well, that part was really funny. Um, something like eight of the pieces are in my top 10 f- all-time favorite tripping mix. Oh, really? So it's a whole bunch of my own favorite music that just happened to fit perfectly in my film. That's fantastic. And true to self, too, which is amazing. I guess. I yeah. think so. If they're your favorites, that's cool. You know, and how amazing that they work so well. That's cool. And it, it was, it, it's amazing how much difference it makes to try a different piece of music over the same footage. Oh, right. Like I had, the, there's this one scene where the birds wait through the night. There's one sitting on the nest yes. and it waits through the night. And have all of this kind of trippy, there's some time lapses, the moon with the yes, clouds right. rushing by uh-huh. and the stars turning. And I wanted just a, an echoey, magical, spiritual piece of music. And I had a piece of guitar music in there and, and the scene was almost working. And then I dropped Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan. Oh, yeah. And his voice, just that sacredness in his voice mm. was just like, oh, my God, instantly that that was the I knew that was the right one. That's perfect. And you I think you use your voice in it a little bit as well. Is that right? Yeah, I, I practice a form of Tibetan throat singing uh-huh. that, that was in there at one point. That's amazing. Well, thank you for sharing all that. Now it's time for a little bit of music here. Um, this is a, a, a recommendation from a friend of mine. So shout out to Sylvia if you're listening. I'm totally playing it on the show. She just turned me on to Juana Molina. And the song that we're going to hear is Paraguaya. And this is the Apex Hour, KSU Thunder 91.1. Seguir lo que pedía 
Okay, welcome back, everyone. So yeah, that was just this really cool new artist that I've discovered. Well, I actually don't know if they're new, but new to me, Juana Molina, um, J-U-A-N-A, and Molina, M-O-L-I-N-A, and that song was Paraguaya. Um, so yeah, check out, really cool. Um, welcome back, Chris Jordan. Thank you, it's good to be back again. We were talking about your film Albat- Albatross, and I wanted to get into a couple of the the key themes in it. Um, uh, to to start, um, maybe well, neither are easy topics, but perhaps maybe um, I know it's a question that you get asked all the time um, because it's such a the film has such a powerful message about the 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 damages of mass consumption, particularly of plastic, and I just can't. Um, iterate to our audience enough about how powerful it is and um, uh, what a profound effect it has on the audience and continues to have on you. I, I, I saw, I mean, now, even after the eight years that you spent with this film, it's still, um, it, it still ha- holds quite an, and, and gains quite an emotional impact from you when you talk about it. Um, and so the question Im- immediately becomes, I mean, we are, Many of us are becoming more conscious about straws and about plastic silverware and these kinds of things. But I know you get asked all the time um, in the context of the work that you've done, what have you done in your life? What changes have you made? Are you completely plastic free? What should we all do? Help us, please. You know, and, and I know it's a question you get asked all the time. And, and so I appreciate you entertaining the answer again. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, it's... Uh... It's such interesting territory to kind of wade into. Right. Because if you step back from just one level and have a perspective on this whole conversation, there's a whole paradigm that we're all in that is people talking about solutions, individual solutions to global problems. Yeah. So we look at a massive global problem like climate change and what are you personally doing? Well, I ride my bike to work. Well, yeah. I drive a, a Prius or whatever thing. And we look at a giant global problem like hundreds of thousands of tons of plastic in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And and activists tell us, like, what are, what are you doing? Well, I don't use plastic bags. And I've always sensed this strange disconnect between our individual behavior and the global problem. Right. And the, the disconnect is that there's an assumption built into that whole conversation that if we each do these tiny little gestures, like not using plastic straws when we go to a bar and order a martini, mm-hmm. that that will somehow lead to something bigger that solves the global problem. Right, you hear it all the time. And that's it, it's not happening. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. It isn't true. Mm-hmm. The global problems are getting worse and worse faster and faster. And our solutions are not even at one hundredth of the scale of the problems. Right. But when we do those little gestures, we convince ourselves that we're doing something, that we're doing enough. And so here's how I think about it is uh, there's, I do all that stuff just because it's the right thing to do. And we all should everything we can think of in all kinds of ways, not only about plastic, 
But I don't not use plastic straws because it's going to make a difference to the global problem. Mm-hmm. I don't use plastic straws for the same reason that I pet my dog mm-hmm. because I love my dog. And when I pet my dog, I don't think I'm contributing to global love and transformation of the world. I know that's a, a private individual, tiny, local, personal gesture that I'm making. And that's all it is. And if we're going to solve the problems on the scale of the problems, we have to do something more than make lots of individual, personal, tiny, local gestures. Mm -hmm. And we have to get out of this paradigm that we're stuck in thinking that that's all there is to do. There's so much more to do to solve global climate change than just riding our bike. Right. Because, and there's a way you can see that entire conversation around individual solutions as being a kind of defense mechanism. Mm. Because we can, we can get focused on something like plastic straws and everybody's talking about plastic straws and thinking, oh, I'm an environmentalist, and everybody's wagging their fingers at each other about plastic straws as if plastic straws are the problem. Right. What we aren't talking about is the 747s and the, and the mil- massive military spending mm-hmm. and the, the Jeeps and the BMWs and the motorcycles and the leaf blowers and the new computers and the phones and the, the airports and the shopping malls and the freeways and the, and, and the apartment buildings that are being built. Like, that's the problem. Right. The problem is not plastic straws. We could eliminate all plastic straws on Earth, and it really honestly wouldn't make a smidge of a difference to the real problem. Mm-hmm. But if we can all talk about plastic straws and think we're accomplishing something and think that we're doing something good and think that we're environmentalists, that to me is sort of like taking a shot of morphine together. Mm. We got to get off, we got to get out of that defense mechanism and look honestly at the scale of the problems and start to think how can we as a people, we as humanity, address those problems at the scale of the problems. Right. And then what's the role that each one of us has to play because we're each so small. Mm -hmm. And I believe that the answer lies in focusing not on those individual problems out there, but on focusing in here, in our mind, in the morphic field of human consciousness, that's where the problem, that's Mm -hmm. the root, that's Mm -hmm. the headwaters Mm -hmm. of all of the biggest problems in the world is in human culture. It's in our consciousness. And that's the thing that needs to change and heal before we have the motivation or or the, 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 the energy, the collective energy to look out into the world and make the changes out there that we know need to be made. I love the way that you describe that because I think it, it, it clarifies a little bit because the information that we get and we hear and this whole thing about, yeah, the individual versus the bigger problem. And I wanted to sort of dig, that's a good, good segue for me into the, the next topic, which is for you, it seemed that you really found um, some, some space or some depth or some way to access that level of consciousness through the power of the combined forces of grief and love. 
And it seems like it, and, and I mean, maybe you can, you can say if that's, if that's true or not, or if that's what, how it's resonated for you, but that's sort of a little bit of what I've felt from hearing you speak. Is mm. that, would you say that that's the case or is there something else going on? Um, very much so. And actually there's one little piece that I want to add on to the, to the last bit of our conversation. Yeah. And that is there, there are hundreds of thousands or even millions of dedicated activists out there who are working at every level right. to solve these problems. And I don't want to put down any of that kind of work. The, the people who are passing legislation to ban plastic bags and, and going and talking to restaurants and convincing them not to use plastic straws, like it's all good. And it's just that it's not enough. And I think you were clear about that because like you were saying, you do all those things. You make the personal choice to do all that. We all should be doing all these things. But there's a bigger part of the conversation. There's a, there's a much bigger part of what's going on that we need to wake up to. Yeah. And, and that's why um, I feel like my channel that, that I'm most interested in is about shifting consciousness. And so then the question is, what does it mean to shift consciousness? Like, what are we trying to shift toward? Mm -hmm. And it isn't a, a kind of metaphysical, magical thing at all. It's simply to remember what we have forgotten. We that remember our humanity, like to reconnect with the deepest part of our humanity that we're slowly losing touch with yeah. as we get more and more into our head and more and more even projecting consciousness out of our bodies now into our electronic devices and out into the internet and starting to talk about AI that's going to rule the world in some kind of crazy way. Yeah. It's like, let's bring our agency and our locus of our consciousness back to where it belongs, which is inside our heart. And remember that we're mammals and that we feel something. Mm -hmm. To feel our sadness for all that is being lost in the world and to 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 use sadness i mean sadness can be this incredibly powerful doorway back to love because when we feel sad for the elephants being killed for their tusks or for birds filled with plastic mm -hmm. the reason we feel that sadness is because we love those things and so when we feel that sadness then that's like a doorway home to the love that we all are made of mm -hmm. the love that we all have inside of us for the the miracle that we're all a part of the, the the incomprehensibly beautiful and complex living world that we are all a part of and i i believe that if humanity could remember this together and feel not only talk about but really feel our love for each other and for all of life, then it would change our politics. It would change, it would change everything. It would. And it would make those solutions that now seem so difficult, it would make them all seem easy. And we would have new choices that we don't even realize we have now. We could change our institutions. We could, we could adopt a culture of generosity and love between each other and for the environment as well and, and really step into a whole new world together. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. I, I can't wait for those days. I look forward to them. Oh, and there's nothing standing in the way. Yeah. It could be tomorrow 
that Let's we do it. collectively decide. It could be right now. Yeah. That we collectively decide it's just time to, it's just time to remember that we love each other. Yeah. Well, here, here to that. Unbelievably, we are running out of time. I can't believe it. I have two fun questions for you. I had more music to share with you, but we'll wait for your next visit for that. Um, but I have two, uh, two, two questions for you that are sort of our two favorites. One is a, a, a question that I heard from someone that I just think is just a, such a fun question. If you met um, the version of yourself from, let's say, 10 years ago, if you met the 10 year old, 10 years previous version of yourself in a bar fight, who would win? Ooh. <laughs> wow. I just love that I've question. I've <laughs> never thought of that before. You know, it's very well, interesting. <laughs> first, I'd be like, dude, how'd you get in that time machine? <laughs> before share, I kick your ass. Share the technology. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think I could take him. He's, he was stronger than I am now, but I, I think I value life a little more. Ah. I'd be a little more... A, a little more focused, I think. I think I could probably take him down. I love it. I could but see first, that. first, I'd be like, dude, let's have a beer and figure out how we both got here together. <laughs> That's right. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Um, and then the last question that I'd love to ask, and this is, um, it can be anything, and it's kind of a, a, a loose question. It's what's turning you on this week? And it could be, we've had everything from a TV show to a podcast to a, a book that you're reading or a poem or a music or it could be anything it could be food it could be anything and the idea is for our listeners to learn something you know completely um personalized and maybe sort of off you know in your realm of things but chris jordan what is turning you on this week mm. apart from suu and your incredible stay with us you know well i was just about to say <laughs> there's there's actually something about suu that you guys might not see, oh. but I see really clearly because I get to visit tons of colleges and universities around the country all the time. There's a conversation, a kind of academic conversation going on in just about every other school I've visited that is really toxic. Oh, okay. There's a ton of anger between students mm. between students and the faculty oh. students hate the faculty because they think it's the faculty caused the, the great problem of the of our world right students are all angry at each other everybody feels this terrible competition uh -huh. and there's this this kind of toxic darkness oh. that permeates entire universities oh, wow. all the way to the top of the best ivy league schools wow where everybody's offended with everybody else mm. and Everyone's like staking out their territory and mm -hmm. and there's this giant power struggle going on. The curse of the ivory tower. Ah, <laughs> but not only in the, in, in the ivory tower schools, like schools everywhere ah. where everyone's walking on eggshells trying to use the right pronouns and, and, and if you use the wrong, egg, the wrong pronoun, somebody slams their laptop shut and storms out the door and goes and complains to the dean. Right. And... And it's a really important conversation to be having around race and gender yeah. and, and identity. Mm -hmm. Incredibly important stuff. It's like cutting edge cultural evolution going on there, mm -hmm. but there's no healing happening. Mm. It's just a lot of toxicity. And I don't see that here at oh, this school. Great. Like that's the thing that turns me on is walk around this campus and see everybody getting along <laughs> and learning. Cool. People are learning here. 
I love and, it. And some of the schools that I visited, there's not very much learning. Like everybody's so interested in offering their opinion right. and telling everybody like their own viewpoint mm. that there's not a lot of curiosity. Like, like everybody's out there saying, here's who I am. This is what my identity is. This is my gender. Deal with it. Right. And, but nobody's saying, who are you? Yeah. Like looking over with wide eyes at, at, at somebody who's different than them saying like, tell me about, tell me about what do you believe in? Well, I'm thrilled that, that, that you're seeing that That seems to be going here. on here. Great. Yeah, I really love the vibe here. So I, I hope I get to come back. Well, we hope to have you back and go SUU. Well, that's a great note for us to close on. And so I'd like to thank my guests. Thank you, Chris, so much for spending the hour with me. I really appreciate it. Can't wait for next time. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> All right. That's it for today. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu slash apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.